0: From Kurtco Media. Just like George Washington's house, the Statue of Liberty, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Space Shuttle Discovery, we have to make sure that we document these artifacts exactly the way that they do all of these other things that are so relevant to our history and our cultural past.
1: That was the voice of Diane Parker, our guest today on Cars That Matter.
0: This is Cars That Matter.
1: This is Robert Ross with another episode of Cars That Matter. Welcome to our show. Please meet my guest, Diane Parker. Diane, welcome.
0: Hello, Robert. It's so nice to be with you. Thanks for having me.
1: It's great to be speaking with you, though we are separated by many miles and states. Diane, you're vice president of the Historic Vehicle Association, known as the HVA. That organization has been around for a while, founded in 2009, I understand, with some support from our friends at Haggerty. How would you introduce the Historic Vehicle Association to our listeners?
0: I would say, first of all, our why, why we are here, why we are the HVA is because we believe that America's automotive heritage is worth saving, that the stories are worth telling, and the human interest aspect of it is worth bringing forward to people. And it's not just about car guys and car girls. This is for everyone because you may not be a car person, but everyone loves a really great story. And that's what we're doing here is we're saving history and we're telling some really great stories.
1: So it goes beyond just the automobile, and it really becomes a part of our cultural heritage. The Historic Vehicle Association was founded based on these principles, but you're connected in some way with the Department of Interior and the Library of Congress. Is that right?
0: We are connected through the Department of Interior's Historic American Engineering Record, who then is connected to the Library of Congress. And that is through our programming, which is the National Historic Vehicle Register. It can be complicated, so to simplify everything. Thing, is we're filling a gap in our history. We have over 80,000 buildings, covered bridges, aircraft, and other objects that have been covered as part of our cultural past. But the vehicle had never been included until the HVA came along and started filling that gap in 2014. Now, we were created in 2009, so we don't want to get listeners confused. Initially, when the HVA was created, it was more of a legislative watch, kind of this overall what was going on. And then we discovered that there was this huge gap in our history and our cultural heritage. And we thought no one else is doing it. So we're going to fill this one car at a time. So we did an agreement with the Department of Interior. Suddenly we are filling this long gap that has never been filled. People are really astonished when they find out, what do you mean cars have never been a part of our documented heritage? They've been a part of our lives for hundreds of years. It's one of the greatest technological advancements and will continue to be. And and it was never covered.
1: I'm stunned. I'm bewildered. I'm enraged when I think that covered bridges and buildings, probably locomotives and aircraft are included, that motor vehicles have never really been a part of this cultural legacy. It seems so natural because you're right. Virtually everyone has some connection with an automobile.
0: We all have a car story. We've got family vacations or learning to drive or whether it's a manual or an automatic, we can reach back and tell a car story.
1: With the register being established, it begs the question, how are the vehicles selected and who really selects them?
0: This is a really great question. We get this question all the time. And it's not one single thing. It takes a lot of ingredients to make a really great pot of soup. And so there are a lot of things that go into it. A lot of times we'll look at anniversaries that are coming up in the industry that we will celebrate, something to do with our cultural past. And we actually listen to people that are saying, for instance, why haven't you put a Model T on the register. And so we hear these loud voices of the people within what I call our car community.
1: A lot like the Stamp Advisory Committee for the U.S. Postal Service. And who decides which commemorative stamps are really going to be issued and in commemoration of what? I imagine in this case, everyone's got an opinion as to which automobile is particularly significant. And it may just be a matter of time until we get around to sort of hanging all of those various ornaments on the National Historic Vehicle Registry tree.
0: I like to say we've got some catching up to do. There are over 2,500 different makes Of automobiles that were made. If we were to just do one, one of every single one, we currently have 28. It's a pretty exhaustive and time-consuming process to put a car on the register. Well, I wanted to
1: talk about that because it's obviously more than just somebody picking a name out of a hat and saying, okay, we're going to add this to the list. What's entailed in all the documentation?
0: A car has to meet the criteria. And the criteria that we have is very similar to the criteria for the built world, for the Register of Historic Places. It is association with a person, maybe a famous person, with an event, a famous event. It's design and engineering, what we call design and engineering value. What makes it particularly special from a design and engineering aspect? And then there's something called information value. And that's simply, is it the first? Is it the last? Is it maybe the only one made? Or is it maybe the only one remaining? A car only has to meet one of the four criteria. Oftentimes what we put on the register It checks all four boxes. As we progress through and now we know that it fits within the criteria, then we have to do studio photography. And these are guidelines that are used, again, by the Historic American Engineering Record for the built world. And so it's very, very specific how far we have to be back from the car. None of the photographs can be brushed up in any way, shape or form. It has to go in exactly as the photo is taken.
1: So these are real forensic records. In other words, this is for the ages. This lasts.
0: And along with that is the written history. So all of the research that goes into ensuring that we can actually track back all of the history related to the car. And then we work with the Department of Interior to do measured line drawings. It sounds really fancy, but they come in with the machine they do a laser scan. So it's a 3D scan so that we do 2D drawings. So we have drawings, measure drawings of the car.
1: So in other words, you kind of reverse engineer the thing and have a set of blueprints that would be used to reference the photographs and the actual object should something ever happen to the object.
0: Exactly. And this is how we capture the artifact holistically. It has to be right. It has to be right because it's going into the largest library in the world the Library of Congress, just like George Washington's house, the Statue of Liberty, the Golden Gate Bridge, the Space Shuttle Discovery. We have to make sure that we document these artifacts exactly the way that they do all of these other things that are so relevant to our history and our cultural past.
1: So obviously, you have a very big responsibility, not just to the record, but also to the individual objects that are a part of it. Is this potentially just about automobiles, or could a truck or a bus or a motorcycle be in the register?
0: It's all of that and everything in between. As a matter of fact, we have the Future Liner on the register already.
1: That's that incredible General Motors concept bus, if you want to call it that, that used to travel around the country in the 50s, and wow, all of the spectators at these great GM Motoramas, huh?
0: That's right. The Parade of Progress, they called it. The Future Liner is in the National Automotive and Truck Museum in Auburn, Indiana. Just a spectacular gigantic vehicle.
1: It's a towering monster, isn't it? It
0: is a towering monster with its own specialized 40-foot trailer because what else is going to be able to carry this thing around? It was great. We actually displayed the Future Liner in Washington, D.C. a few years back. And it was really interesting getting it into the city before the auto show and having to find a place to store it. And it was even more interesting as the thing was driving down the streets of Washington, D.C. And I had this pit in my stomach like, my God, what if something happens?
1: That had to be as spectacular as seeing Khrushchev's missile launchers or North Korea's brigade of weaponry. When it comes to technology and basically dominating the world. GM sure did it with those big brutes back in the 50s. And by the way, it's red.
0: Red and white (laughs) with this huge light bar that will extend up out of the top that, by the way, was still working when we documented the number 10. So just a beast, just a fantastic vehicle.
1: You talk about the future liner rumbling down the streets of Washington, D.C. I know that some of the vehicles are displayed in a public venue, but where are most of these cars that are on the register at present? In other words, can the public see? see these cars?
0: It's a mix. These cars are owned either by individuals or by what we call stewards. So it could be in a museum, it could be part of a private collection. It just depends on what vehicle of the 28 that you might want to see whether you would have access to it. You
1: mentioned 28. So I guess you're up to the magic number of 28. In fact, I know that you've just announced a couple of new inductees to the vehicle register, numbers 27 and 28. Why don't you tell us about number 27?
0: Number 27. the 1921 Duesenberg Straight 8, which was later known as the Model A, which the audience might relate a little bit more to it being called the Model A rather than the Straight 8. But we're historians, so we have to call it as it was back in the day. So we introduced it as the Straight 8. But this is also known as the Castle Duesenberg because this car was specially ordered by Samuel Castle, and he owned a sugar plantation in Hawaii. And he waited two years for this car. The Bender Body Company created the body for him because back in the day, Duesenberg, you just bought the chassis. You didn't buy the whole car.
1: Everything was coach built.
0: Everything was coach built. So it went out to Bender, and this was very, very specifically built for Mr. Castle because he was a man of very large stature. He was seven feet tall and 300 pounds.
1: Good heavens.
0: For his height and length, this car is about as custom as you can get. But one of the fun things about this, when we think about a Duesenberg right now, we think about concours and we think about only bringing it out when the weather is beautiful, but Mr. Castle, this was utilitarian for him. He took this car and went around the sugar plantation. He treated it like a pickup truck. It was utilitarian for him, which I think is just one of the fun parts of the story about this Duesenberg.
1: Well, the other fun part of the story, as I understand it, is it has really the first straight-eight engine that was ever used in an automobile for road use. Correct. Has the first hydraulic brakes, and I guess it's the first Duesenberg. Is that right?
0: Yeah, as the ACD Museum, Sam Great, the curator there put it.
1: That's Auburn Core Duesenberg Museum, the kind of trifecta of the most luxurious and significant American marks.
0: It is, but this Duesenberg, remember the Duesenberg brothers were known for building race engines, and so this was a beautiful combination of luxury and speed. It was passenger car, race car, combined into one. That kind of set the tone, I think. A luxury vehicle didn't have to be this kind of slow-moving sloth. You could go on miles an hour in a straight eight if you wanted to.
1: That's pretty remarkable when you consider the years 1921. Certainly post-war, a number of manufacturers have tried to combine a racing engine with a luxury sedan. Maserati's Quattroporte was the first example of something like that, or the Aston Martin Rapide from the same era. But Duesenberg was doing this back in the really the stone age of automotive history. 1921, things were pretty basic back then.
0: This too had the hemispherical combustion chamber. It's a Hemi.
1: Well, speaking of HEMIs, I understand car number 28 has a HEMI. It has a 426 V8. Tell us about the Dodge Challenger.
0: I love all cars, but I grew up with two older brothers. So the Mopar no car kind of lived in our household. (laughs) So this 426 HEMI, just wow. I mean,
1: (sighs) in terms of build spec that checks all the boxes, it's exactly what you want.
0: And this car was specifically ordered by Godfrey Qualls, the original owner, and he checked just about every single box that you could possibly imagine with this car. A 426 Hemi, when he ordered it in 1969, it was a $778.75 upcharge. So 23% upcharge. That
1: was a lot of money for a motor back then, huh?
0: That was a lot of money. Four-speed Hurst pistol grip, floor mounted super track pack, heavy-duty suspension, gator grain top. Look, I have goosebumps just talking about (laughs) it. I mean, this is likely the only only car with this combination of performance and trim options that we'll ever see. This car was owned by Godfrey Qualls, as I said. He was a combat veteran. He was a Green Beret. He's a Purple Heart recipient. He later became a Detroit police officer. Of all things, he was a traffic cop. So he's giving out something like 800 tickets a month, according (laughs) to his son, Gregory, who now owns the car.
1: So the car's still in the family, huh?
0: The car's still in the family, has been in the family. Godfrey passed away about five years ago, so his son Gregory has the car, intends for it to remain in the family too, and is sharing it with his son, Greg. But Gregory did not know that his father was street racing this car in Detroit back in the 70s. He never told him. And it's so ironic that Godfrey is this Detroit police officer and he's street racing this car. He's giving out 800 traffic tickets a month. And that this car was known as the Black Ghost. So it shows up every couple of months and it just beats every single car that goes up against it. And then it just mysteriously disappears (laughs) into the night. What a great story.
1: We've just talked about the two latest inductees, which are super high performance cars. But when I had a chance to spend some time on your great website, it seems like the very first car inducted was a super high performer. One of six Shelby Daytona Coupes. CSX
0: 2287, the Shelby Cobra Daytona Coupe. The only one built completely here in the United States, all built by hand, and it was also built in 90 days. Pretty unbelievable. Of
1: course, that whole racing program was really down to the wire, wasn't it? Peter
0: Brock will tell you all about that, too.
1: That's in the Simeon Museum now, is that right?
0: That is in the Simeon Museum. What a great museum. Probably one of the greatest museums with race car collection that you'll ever have the opportunity to see.
1: That car set a real benchmark, both in terms of American performance in motorsport during the mid-60s, and it's still got to be one of the most beautiful cars ever designed.
0: It is, and you know the car, it still runs, and they take it out on test days there at the museum in a safe environment, and they run the car, and I tell you, it is absolutely spectacular. It will give you goosebumps when you listen (laughs) to that car run.
1: Those were the days. They were also the days of people having fun with what were essentially kit cars. I know number two in your register is the Myers Manx, and that is really an American icon, isn't
0: it? One of the most replicated cars of all time, and Bruce Myers is just, he is just a hit it hard. He's in his 90s, but I swear maybe he's eight years old at his (laughs) core. I mean, just having fun.
1: That little car is kind of the original Hot Wheels, isn't it?
0: It is the original Hot Wheels. We actually filmed this car on the beach. And Amelia before we put out the video on it and Bruce was there with us we were done filming and he said come on get in with me get in with me and he said see that right there we were pointed towards the water and there were a bunch of seagulls and he just nailed that accelerator and we head to that beach line and the birds went everywhere and he is waving his hands in the car and he looked over at me just giggling like a little boy and he said that never gets old just (laughs) after all these years he's just still enjoying it.
1: That's the kind of experience cars should bring and prove too that it doesn't take monstrous power to have an awful lot of fun. I know your number three car was one that is very, very significant. I remember actually producing an ad for Maserati right after that car was inducted. It is their 8CTF Boyle Special and it's the winningest car in the history of the Indianapolis 500. That's right.
0: Here is a car that just ticks off every box. Incredible engineering prowess, proved itself at Indy on the track, just a masterful and beautiful piece of machinery.
1: Wilbur Shaw wrestling that big, long devil must have been really quite something back in 1939, 1940 that went on to compete and finally ended up in its present collection. Where is that?
0: That is in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum. It is where it belongs. With race cars, it's tough because a lot of times it doesn't retain many of its original materials. And this is one of those cars that retains most of its materials and components and the craftsmanship.
1: It's nice to be able to see how they were actually built in the day. I mean, most race cars are works in progress. And they have parts hung on them as parts fall off or parts get crashed or (laughs) parts break. But in this case, it had a very specific job to do and fortunately it survived those races. And it's incredible to be able to see such a period of history preserved. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Welcome to Life Done Better. Listen to the weekly episodes where supermodel and health coach Jill DeYoung talks to some of the world's most inspiring women in health and wellness. It's the place for all the unicorns who strive to create a life on their own terms. Join us to explore, discover, and create a life done better together. Listen and subscribe from Kurtco Co Media, media for your mind. We're back with Diane Parker. Diane, let's get back to it. You've got everything from soup to nuts in the National Historic Vehicle Register. And one car that fascinates me is a car that I actually had a chance to talk to another guest on our show about, a fellow that you know quite well, Brian Howard from B.R. Howard & Associates, who's a conservator. He had a chance to work on this particular vehicle. Why don't you tell us about this funny little Volkswagen bus? The
0: 1966 Volkswagen Type. To deluxe station wagon. A lot of people refer to it as the microbus. But again, we are purists. And so we give it the exact title. I actually have a photo of this Microbus in my office.
1: Most people would look at it and say, what is that doing in there?
0: Right. It is the human interest story behind the horsepower. And that's what makes this bus so incredibly significant. This bus was really, really important during the kind of pre-civil rights movement. Esau and Janie B. Jenkins were pioneers as far as the movement in civil rights. And Esau Jenkins used this bus to, he would take people around John's Island in South Carolina to their doctor's appointments. He would take children to places to play so that they had activities and things like that. Because remember, back during this time on John's Island, people didn't have access to transportation as they do now. And so this little bus was kind of this beacon of hope that was used around John's Island and beyond. But even beyond that, the Jenkins created opportunities for people to learn. So they would transport African-American workers into Charleston. Along the way, they would teach them what they needed to know about the Declaration of Independence so that they could actually pass a test to vote. They would teach them to read. A lot of people didn't have access to education. Esau met with people like Martin Luther King, leaders like that. Martin Luther King actually consulted, wanted to know, what are you doing that's working? You're kind of getting people behind this movement. And that's because Esau Jenkins was working with the people and he was working up, where Martin Luther King was kind of working from the top down. It's where these leaders came together. So this little bus rested in the backyard of the Jenkins' home. It survived many a storm where buildings and homes, including the Progressive Club where Esau Jenkins had many of his meetings, didn't last. This little tiny bus lasted until we came along and we took it out so that we could share the story. This bus was almost up to the axles it was sunk into the backyard. We brought in some talent from the NB Center for American Automotive Heritage, and they helped us stabilize the bus so that it could actually be moved because we didn't want the roof caving in naturally because we had to get it from South Carolina to our lab in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And once we got it there, then we called B.R. Howard in to take a look and see what needed to be done because the family does not want this to be restored. They want it to be preserved. B.R. Howard did a spectacular job. They brought out some things underneath the finishes and the paint once they got the dirt off where you could see just a little bit of lettering about the community on the side.
1: That had to be one of the most challenging projects you've ever embraced.
0: This was the only project to date where we have actually been involved and got other qualified subject matter experts involved to stabilize, preserve, and conserve the automobile. And boy, are we glad that we did. It's a spectacular story.
1: That is an amazing story. Obviously, it begs the question, does it run and where does it live?
0: It does not run. And right now, it's at the Peterson Museum. It will eventually come back to the family. So the family is very involved in building an African-American museum in Charleston, South Carolina. They're also trying to rebuild the Progressive Club. And so eventually, the Jenkins bus will go back home. Until then, we have a place for it in our very safe and temperature-controlled lab in Allentown, and it's our pleasure to help the family in that way. We've become very close to all the members of the family, which often happens with us because we spend a tremendous amount of time with the stewards or the families of these vehicles. In order to do the research. And these families, they share so much of their lives with us. They will pull out the photographs and old films, and they'll sit down with us and tell us stories. And consequently, we become extremely close to the people. I have long-lasting family within the community here, and it's a very, very special part of the job that we do. And that really speaks to these human interest stories. It's more than just the car. Certainly
1: in the Car collecting arena. I'm going to call it collecting, but it's really more the car heritage arena. The good news is that the objects are sufficiently recent in history that many of the humans who touched them originally might still be around, or certainly their immediate descendants are. Provenance really is key to the appreciation of any piece of art or any artifact of culture. And the good news is that in the automotive arena, much of that provenance and history can be preserved because the people themselves are still around to tell the stories. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could actually talk? to somebody who built a pyramid. But in this case, we're lucky enough to be able to know some of the people that touched these cars. There are so many cars. We could go on a literally an A to Z tour of the cars that are in your register. There are two, though, that struck me as being particularly interesting because they're not cars that you would ordinarily expect to see. And I think what they really do is address the breadth of impact that a car can have on the public consciousness. The first one that comes to mind is a remarkable thing, more like a work of art than a car. And that's the 64 Chevy Impala Gypsy Rose. It's a lowrider.
0: It's a lowrider.
1: What an incredible thing. It's a beautiful kind of pink swirling paint job and a car that really defined the automotive interests of so many young men and women in America during the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And even today, I guess.
0: Low riding is alive and well. This one really was very early on. Jesse Valadez, the original owner who's now passed, as well as his son, Jesse Jr., just passed last year. This car was 150 hand painted roses across the car. This wasn't the only one that was created. Jesse Valadez wanted to change the mindset of what low riding meant. Low riding was thought to be associated with gang activity. He wanted to change that. He wanted to create a new culture behind it. And so he created the Imperials. The Imperials, you were expected to carry yourself in a certain way. Number one, you had to give back to your community. You showed up on Saturdays at a Imperials club meet and your car better be clean because the car was going to be inspected, not just on the outside, but under the hood. And you needed to be dressed to the nines. You did not show up looking slovenly. You show up in your best with your car looking the best. But he gave the kids something else to look toward when it came to low riding, that low riding no longer had to be associated with gang activity. That's an entire cultural movement. And that's exactly why we have this register. So it doesn't just speak to the components and the horsepower and all of the accessories on a car. But this is truly a car that still to this day, low riding has a cultural impact, just like hot riding and things of that nature. And thankfully, we've captured that story because. Jesse Valadez Jr. passed in September of 2019 of stomach cancer. He was very young, so he's in his 40s. He was recently married in May and passed away in September. And this is another one of these where we became extremely close to not just the Valdez family, but also the Imperials. They are a family in and of themselves. And we were invited to participate in their barbecues and things of that nature. We spent so much time with Jesse. Him and I stayed in touch, holidays and things like that. And so thankfully. Now we will never lose the story behind the Gypsy Rose Lowrider. That we've documented this, and my friend, he's on there, and I can see him tell the story, and I can hear his voice now anytime I want to.
1: And where is that car?
0: That is at the Peterson Museum in L.A.
1: That's a perfect place to keep it. I just can't resist talking about one more car. It's a car that, by all rights, any Ferrari aficionado would take great umbrage at this thing being on the list. It's not even a car. In fact, it should go to the crusher. But you've got Ferris. Bueller's Ferrari, the fakest Ferrari of them all, and yet the Ferrari that probably had a greater audience and a greater impact than any prancing horse in history.
0: When we announced the Ferris Bueller Ferrari, it was amazing the generations that this car crossed over. We displayed it on the National Mall as part of our Cars at the Capitol exhibition. We had a young man by the name of Michael. He was 10 years old. He showed up with mom and dad. The movie, everything about the car, 10-year-old Michael knew about this car. His mom kind of had tears in her eyes because we're standing there talking and it's myself and it's Michael and it's mom and dad and they're on a vacation. And, and mom said he's 10 years old and it's hard to have a conversation. But this car has been such a subject of conversation for us. And mom and dad are familiar with the movie and Michael is familiar with the movie. And so they were able to join together and have this beautiful family vacation. And the owner of the car happened to be there. And I asked him if Michael, if I could let him behind the ropes for Michael, to sit in the car. And it was just, it was a really great, wonderful day for uh, 10-year-old Michael and, and his parents.
1: That's how you make a lifelong car fan. And it's amazing that your organization is able to facilitate that. And that a car that was essentially a movie star that doesn't need a facelift was the catalyst for that.
0: Great car. I've driven it several times. It looks like it's a stick, but it's not. It is actually an automatic because Matthew Broderick could not drive a stick.
1: <laughs> That's fantastic. What a story. What a story. We'll take a short break, Diane, but we'll be right back.
0: A moment of your time. A new podcast from Kurt Co Media. currently 21 years old, and today I felt like I'm like magic extended a poem from her fingertips down to the you base of my You have to take of
1: care smile. of yourself because the world needs you and Trust your Trust me, voice.
0: every do-gooder that asked about me was ready to spit on my like dreams. My fingers were facing me. I feel like your purpose and your worth is really being They're questioned. going to stop me from... Playing the piano. She buys walkie-talkies, wonders to whom she should give the second device. Cats don't
1: love humans. We never did, we never will, we just find one The beauty that are of right. rock climbing
0: is that you can only focus on what's right in life. And so our American life begins. We may need to stay apart, but let's create together. Available on all podcast platforms. Submit your piece at kirkco.com slash a moment of your time.
1: Welcome back to cars that matter. Diane, let me ask you, I got a such and such in my garage. How
0: do we get my car in
1: the register?
0: Oh my gosh, we get emails and phone calls every single day. We really do.
1: I'll bet you do.
0: You know what though? It's great. We love it because it means that people are paying attention and it means that they're engaged with us. And so for every person that sends us an email and every person that calls in, we actually take that information.
1: Wow, that's amazing. So it's not just don't call us, we'll call you. You actually listen?
0: We actually listen and we add it to a spreadsheet. Every year, we continue to add cars onto the register. And so we listen and we take everything into consideration. We are working on, at some point, trying to make this process a little bit easier because, like I said, it's pretty exhaustive. People might say, gosh, you only have 28 cars on the National Historic Vehicle Register. Well, when you think about this is a program that was created in 2014. So it's been alive for seven years now. So an entire program had to be created. All of the criteria had to be built, had to be agreed upon with the Department of Interior and Library of Congress. And this has been a learning process of how exactly do we do this? Now that we're starting to kind of get this process down, it's still exhaustive. How can we take this a step further so that we can answer that question of how do I get my car on the register? And we're not there yet. We're working on it. And that's the hope is to build this program to the point that we can make it a little bit more seamless so that we can answer the call that we hear so often. What's
1: next? Do you actually set your sights on some cars for the future? And if you do, you're probably not going to share that secret, but do you have some in mind?
0: We already have our 2021 cars in mind.
1: Fantastic.
0: So we're always looking ahead, kind of always paying attention to what's going on out there.
1: Without naming names, can you tell us how many cars we might see in 2021? In other words, is there a goal for a registered number?
0: We've done anywhere from two to five cars in a year. We've got this list that we're taking a look at, and although we haven't decided yet exactly how many, we're narrowing it down because we're getting close. We've got to start the process.
1: I imagine there's some vociferous debate there. And of course, we'll all be very thankful when 2020 is over and we can get on to a new year and see some new cars added to your register as well.
0: One of the things that we normally do to share our automotive heritage is an event called Cars at the Capitol. It's an exhibition that we do on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. All of the cars that are inducted into the register, one at a time, we display them in a glass enclosure. We call it our jewel box on the National Mall. And that had never been done before, Either because you cannot sell, market, or advertise anything on the National Mall. But that's not what we're doing. We're teaching history. And so we set up this glass display case between the Air and Space Museum and the National Gallery of Art, just a couple blocks from the nation's capital. If you look in one direction, and then if you turn around in the other direction is the Washington Monument. And so for one week at a time, we display these cars. It's like a pop-up museum, if you will. And it's lit up at night. Our website has some beautiful photography of some of the cars that we've displayed on the National Mall. And the Park Service actually looks forward to us coming back every year. The great part about It is people run and walk, they exercise around the National Mall all the time. And we have a young lady that actually works in the Capitol building that comes by every year, and she's a self proclaimed non car person. She doesn't even own a car. She doesn't care about cars, but she loves what we're doing because she can come and she can look at the car and we have exhibitry all the way around. So you don't have to talk to one of us. It's kind of like a museum. You could read all about the history of the car and kind of the cultural impact and everything that it's meant both to the family as well as our history. And then you can go about your way. And so she'll come by every day and she'll read the same story over and over. She'll come and visit every day, which is great, which is what we're about, right? It's about reaching everybody, not just car people.
1: That's the real purpose of any museum or cultural institution that has a purpose that goes beyond just displaying artifacts, but telling stories. And the didactic content is always so crucial to making it meaningful, especially to people who, as you say, might not be quote unquote car folks. But apparently you have a lot of folks because I see on your website that you've got almost 500,000 members. Now that's a lot of people. Who are they? And how would our audience become involved or engaged?
0: I prefer followers because members refers to maybe we have something to, I don't have anything to sell you.
1: (laughs) Isn't that refreshing?
0: We just want to share America's automotive past, some history, some great human interest stories. And so the way that people can be followers or become involved is we're on YouTube. We've got our website, which is historicvehicle.org, and we're on Facebook and we're on Instagram. And we love the way that you engage with us. The comments on social media is just fantastic.
1: Tell us about the Drive History Conference.
0: The Drive History Conference is one of our signature events that we've had. So we normally have a Drive History Conference in the spring, and we have our cars at the Capitol exhibition in September timeframe. And the Drive History Conference is an opportunity for people to come together and actually, on the first day, experience old Cars, what it's like to ride in them, and you can drive them if you want to. You get that experiential aspect, which there isn't another conference that's willing to do that.
1: That's incredible. The whole idea of getting behind the wheel of something older than me is a pretty daunting proposition. And the idea of being able to do that at something like your conference is really a great opportunity.
0: And then we bring in subject matter experts. So people like B.R. Howard have come in, but we also bring in historians and stewards and owners. We bring in academia to give different types of presentations so that people can learn and they can kind of couple that with the experience to make for what we think is kind of divine.
1: I understand, of course, that the conference for early 2021 has been postponed, but we'll keep our attention on your website to learn when that might in fact be happening. Diane, this has been a great conversation, but now I want to get personal and talk about you. What got you into this?
0: You know, I've been a car girl, which I didn't even realize, but I was a car girl from a really young age. I grew up with two older brothers. They were 10 and 17 years older than me. The boys were only eight years apart, and so they always had their head underneath the hood of a car. In particular, my memory is the 1970 Dodge Dart that my brothers had in a Hemi orange with the racing stripe on the back and my oldest brother put big slicks on the back because he used to take it to the corner mile drags at 70 and 80 here in maryland i watched the boys spending time together with the car kind of peeking over their shoulder and then my younger brother mike got a 69 Stingray Corvette and saddle interior and tuxedo black. And every single Sunday that the weather was nice, he'd take those T-tops off. He'd put a pillow on the console and his girlfriend was in the passenger seat and he would take me for a ride. Maybe we would go around the block and maybe we'd go for ice cream. But to this day, it is time well spent. It bridged the gap of 10 and 17 years between my brothers and I.
1: Isn't that amazing?
0: My oldest brother Dave passed away of leukemia in 2012 and I came into HVA in 2013. To me it's profoundly sad that my oldest brother did not get to see what is going on right now.
1: What he inspired. He
0: did. He and my other brother inspired me and to this day, so my brother Mike is 10 years older than I am, we spend time talking about cars or we'll watch the auctions on TV. We go go to car events. It's still how we connect. And so for me, the love of cars is not just about the car. It's about time well spent and it's about family time and it's about
1: love. Everything you say is true and you said it infinitely better than I could ever even begin to imagine saying it. Diane, this has been such a pleasure to have you on our program and to learn a little bit about the Historic Vehicle Association and what you're doing there, to learn about the National Historic Vehicle Register, really something worth looking into. And I would encourage all our listeners to take a deep dive on your website and to get to know some of the folks and some of the cars that are a part of your great program.
0: This has been a lot of fun, Robert. Thank you for having me. Really, really appreciate it.
1: Well, we look forward to having you back when we can talk about cars number 29 and 30 and whatever's (laughs) going to be happening for 20. You got it. Thanks to Diane Parker, Vice President of the Historic Vehicle Association, for joining us today on Cars That Matter. Come back next time as we continue to talk about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross, produced by Chris Porter, edited by Chris Porter, theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick, additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast. I'm Robert Ross, and thanks for listening.
0: Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.